Hi, and welcome to Boom It's on the Blockchain. My name's Alistair Caithness, and in the background there, we have Jeffrey Can. And here he is. There he is, Jeffrey. You can feel, I never even put an intro music because I was so excited with you going black, you know. <laughs> fade, fade to black and then fade up fade from black. black. So, yeah, yeah, great to see you, Jeffrey. How are you? Yeah, I can't complain. Uh, it's American Thanksgiving, so uh, happy. Uh, unless you're a turkey, it's a great day. If you're a turkey, it's not a good day. No, the so. 46 million turkeys we were speaking <laughs> offline no, are going to be no. gobbled today in America. You know? Don't don't be a turkey today. <laughs> don't be a turkey bad, today. Bad outcome. So, so just to kick off the show then, Jeffy, if you can give a little bit of background to our viewers and um, a little bit about your upcoming book, etc., Oh, for sure. So uh, my uh, my background uh, is uh, lengthy. I probably can't see, but there's quite a bit of gray hair here. I trim it all off because uh, it's uh, it's spiky and itchy. <laughs> but uh, behind that, behind the gray hair, uh, first career with Imperial Oil in Toronto, which is what got me exposed to the uh, energy industry in general, and then joined uh, uh, De uh, Deloitte and worked there for almost 30 years including 20 years as a partner and in that capacity worked all around the world and uh, uh, then left uh, Deloitte after uh, I had uh, captured all the pension benefit. <laughs> you can't, once, you, once you reach that milestone, you know, you can stay and work on that treadmill or go join a different treadmill. So I left Deloitte uh, in 2018 and uh, published my first book, uh, which was called Bits, Bites and Barrels, uh, The Digital Transformation of Oil and Gas. It, uh, it set out the rationale for oil and gas to pay more attention to digital innovation, which was coming. And, uh, and then I published my second book uh, called Carbon Capital in the Cloud, a playbook for digital transformation in March of this year, 2022. Uh, and it sets out nine case studies around um, best practice or at least good, good practice. It's hard to say it's truly best, but good practice that, that companies can follow to accelerate their adoption of digital innovation in, in the energy industry. And uh, for my sins, I live uh, outside Vancouver on uh, the coastal area. I moved here um, Hey, there's my. Uh, <laughs> we'll bring in my, the everyone see. Yeah, exactly. As my website, uh, I uh, moved here because uh, I was convinced that Canada would expand its LNG export industry to take advantage of uh, the drive to decarbonize um, out of coal principally, but uh, we do not have that many projects here. So I find myself living in a perfect place for the wrong reasons. Uh, there's no there's no industry here so uh instead uh, what i do now is uh i of course um i teach uh the, the interested audiences the insights from my book series uh i am a professional speaker so i travel around or in most cases it's virtual these days delivering lectures on uh, what's in my books and their ideas and um, between that, I write a weekly article series about digital innovation oil and gas. And I also have a podcast, which is called Digital Innovations in Oil and Gas. You can find that just about everywhere. Uh, again, same topic. Perfect. So I think just uh, let's just go over everything a little bit. So sure. let's bring it back to people here. So, hmm. you know, obviously the transformation in the oil and gas industry is happening now. You know, everyone's looking to move to green energy. But just yes. give your overview and insight into the industry as it is right now then, Jeffrey. 
Well, the industry has a, a significant um, a new uh, event, of course, which is the the Russian invasion of Ukraine has thrown uh, energy markets uh, into a bit of a, a topsy-turvy state. Um, so uh, uh, energy prices in Europe are, are sky high. Uh, th this winter looks like Europe may be covered for energy supplies, but next winter may be a real crisis because it takes a long time, years, to bring new liquefied natural gas projects on stream to send energy uh, internationally. Uh, this is uh, The crisis has also given a boost to um, uh, the uh, ambitions for uh, countries to embrace new renewable energy at, at a much faster pace uh, than they have historically. COP27 just ended uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, some uh, announcements related to compensation to poorer countries for um, for the, the challenges that energy and climate change are going to impose on their, their domestic economies. Um, and in between all of that, uh, the, the uh, pressures on North American industry to embrace digital innovations have not changed because uh, two other very critical big factors that are impacting the industry. Number one is talent. Young people do not want to join this industry, and uh, that's a problem because we're going to be relying on it for a very long time. We can't we can't keep trotting out this message that uh, fossil energy is bad for us uh, and the planet, uh, and then not have young people say, "Well, I don't want to be working in an industry that's bad for the planet." So the young people don't want to join the industry. That's a problem because it won't take long before we won't have the expertise we need to run the industry that we're quite highly dependent on. And the second major challenge, of course, is capital. Capital markets don't want to finance the industry. And so capital constraints are an issue. So we find ourselves now in an investment deficit. Not enough money has been poured into energy infrastructure. Uh, so now we're seeing the, the consequences of that. Energy shortages and energy security issues, high prices. And if you cast your mind forward, you can see how uh, it, we have a big catch up to do, a huge deficit of, of energy investment we have not made. We're now going to have to make that at the same time as we're facing these pressures to change. And uh, so the, 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 the current state of this industry, I've, I mean, I've lived through a lot of volatility. <laughs> this is <laughs> lots of downturns. This one's particularly, the, the industry is in a particularly tricky state right now because of the the, the challenges of trying to sort through this um, uh, shift in energy system uh, for the future. It's very, very challenging for people to sort through. Yeah, and I think, you know, I always speak about uh, coal production and what's happening in China and India opening all yeah. the coal plants as well. So I think over lockdown, uh, India opened 51 new massive coal plants and China opened 181 and the rest of the world closed down 179. Yeah. So even though we're looking at moving out and the, always this big stop oil uh, projects are happening there, but there's still mass coal production going on in the world and they're using that for industrial production essentially for all the goods and services. Now, I don't blame India and China anyway because essentially they're the world's factory. You know, America decided not doesn't want to manufacture stuff. The UK yep. specifically is a service country. <laughs> And, yeah. you know, just we don't manufacture anything in the UK anymore. And then, you know, Canada's becoming similar to that as well. It's like you're importing all your products. So yeah. so how do you feel that is balanced with everything else that's happening in terms of like carbon and CO2 emissions and how it's a global problem? But we seem to be focusing on it in Europe and the North America, but the rest of the world, you know, 
they're just they're pushing this back. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly right. The capital markets, because Western economies, for the most part, have denationalized or, if you like, privatized energy uh, in, in, in their domestic economies in Canada. We, we no longer have a national oil company that was uh, uh, that, that, that model uh, disappeared 30 years ago. The United States has no national oil company. But if you leave the, the Western economies, the OECD economies, you frequently encounter a national energy policy that's, that's state-driven and, and has national energy companies uh, that, that are, are the, the sole sanctioned uh, entity to uh, manage, invest in, and grow and support uh, energy infrastructure in those economies. And, and because of that, they are... Uh, consistently less impacted or less motivated or less sensitive to environmental, social, and governance factors that Western economies are now very sensitive to because of our capital market access. We, you, you, you can't be, uh, you can imagine if you're in, uh, in, in, in um, uh, a non-OECD OECD economy or oh, an OPEC country where the state is highly dependent on the resource industry, oil or gas, uh, and uh, the state's treasury is highly dependent on that resource. You know, the, the issues of environmental sensitivity, which we have in the West, uh, may not factor nearly as strongly uh, because the, the considerations at that for those countries are so different. You know, the, the, the amount of money that comes out of the energy industry that goes directly into people's pockets uh, in the economies to keep uh, you know, governments in power uh, means that they're not they're pay as much attention to the environment as as we do in the West. So we have to a degree by creating an economy which is highly sensitized to capital market pressures uh, and uh, uh, free choice by people to join industries or not join industries. We put ourselves into an energy box which is now at odds with um, what we what the you know the, the energy security challenges that the, the global economies are facing. And uh, so th therein lies the challenge. <laughs> uh, mm. How long are we going to live with this? Um, and, and especially when, you know, you look around the world and go, well, hang on a second. Th those guys over there are doing exactly what we're not allowed to do or can't do. And we're suffering the consequences because their CO2 comes. It's global problems, not a domestic problem. Mm. It's a great question. Um, and uh, I don't know the answer, uh, but, but I do feel that there is a very strong sentiment in the uh, Western economies uh, that, that uh, and certainly China absolutely sees this, that uh, when you get in, you start up in new energy systems, once they get put into place, um, entry into those new systems in the future is much harder. So you want to be in at the ground floor. And if we're at the, if you're in the, we're at the ground floor now of, of new energy systems being developed, now's the time to get into it because it may be too late down the, down the, down the track. So the, uh, the, the recent Biden um, Inflation Reduction Act is a really good illustration of how much energy and money is going to be poured into trying to sort this out. And, you know, we need to be thinking not of this as a problem, but rather it's the opportunity. It's the opportunity for us to chase, not to, to run away from, in my, in my view. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, no, I, I completely agree with that as well. It's, yeah. uh, it's a transition that's happening. It's just like, how long is this transition going to take place? <laughs> long time. A long time. <laughs> a lot, and then a lot again, of burners out there. 
yeah, and then places like Iraq and Saudi Arabia, they're going to be the slowest to transition because basically they're pumping all the world's oil. But then, well, and they've made it very clear publicly. Many of these countries have said, "We will be the last man standing." And uh, as uh, you know, when your oil costs you four or five dollars a barrel to get it out of the ground, as it does in some of these OPEC nations, uh, you, you know, they they as, as someone once said to me, is a great great illustration. Uh, they can walk into the deep end of the pool and hold their breath a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> whereas, yeah. whereas the rest of us, you know, we start gasping for air pretty quickly. If the price of oil uh, or the taxation on oil gets to a certain level, we very quickly start to shut stuff in because it's it's unsustainable. But they can go a long time because of the, the low cost of infrastructure. Yeah. And then, and then it comes back to some backward thinking whereby you don't want to produce the oil here in the States, but you want to import more. So yeah. it's Biden going out cap in hand looking for increases in production in Saudi Arabia, but then Saudi Arabia is wanting to cut production because essentially the global demand in other places is slowing up, you know, and what I didn't realize was uh, when they have lockdowns in China, how yeah. much that goes down in terms of the consumption of oil, like 2 million barrels a day. Yeah. So right, let's go back to Biden, though, just as a point here. I don't believe Biden has the ability, your president, U.S. president, being Canadian, I can talk about. That. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm <laughs> but, but here's my perspective there. I do not believe your U.S. president has any authority, really, over how much oil gets produced in the United States. He can't. He's he's not Exxon. He, he can't doesn't make those decisions. He can only create the environment or help foster the environment where Exxon will make that decision. And Exxon makes that decision not uh, uh, not exclusively because uh, Biden says it's a good idea. They do it because the capital markets tell them it's a good idea and that they will get a return. So this is a and the capital markets have said very clearly we are no longer all that keen to be seen to be investing in in a product which creates a climate problem because we might be on the hook for it. Uh, either because we are legally uh, obligated or we, we have to pay for scope three emissions we didn't generate, but we financed. So the, it, it, Biden has not much choice. He can't corral the 50 or 100 U.S. oil producers into doing anything, really, other than from a regulatory standpoint. So we're, we're, who can control a single tap, right? It's, it's the uh, yeah, you're talking about VC money coming into oil and gas. I think it was 2017 there was $200 billion in VC. And that was the small to medium-sized operators. Yeah, 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 outside yeah. Exxon, Chevron, all the big guys. Yep, yep. Small to medium-sized, $200 billion. Yep. Last year, it was $20 billion. Yeah, it's so, like the capital markets have spoken. We're not going to do this in this country. That's a 90% decrease in capital spending. for, And then in addition to that, they're, they're struggling with supply chain problems and product as well. So yeah. they can't get the product to... So even though they've got the oil's there, they've got the leases, it's all licensed, they can't get the product and they can't get the staff as well, just what you talked about. Yep. It's, it's just, all it's factors. It's all, it's yeah. all, so many factors and they can't yep. get people. I know in like a lot of the smaller basins, their biggest problem is staff. They just can't yep. get people anymore. They just can't get people to come there. They don't want to work in the oil fields. Margins become tight. Yeah, it's I mean, just, well, I don't, like, I don't know what we were thinking when we started a campaign that said fossil fuels are are bad for the environment, um, but we what we need people to work in that field. Like, are we, do we I'm not sure we thought that one through because <laughs> <laughs> young people listen to that message very clearly go, why would I put my career on the line for the next 40 years to join an industry you are telling me you're trying to get us out of? That's like saying I want to become a, a tobacco farmer. 
well, mm-hmm. maybe if my family has a tobacco farm, I might, but I'm certainly not going to go buy one and get into the tobacco industry or asbestos, like pick, pick a, pick a product we've demonized over the years. Like we shouldn't be at all surprised. Young people are like, oh, I don't want to work in this industry. Of course, like well, they're, they're just being completely rational. So yeah, anyway, yeah. It's, I, I, this is why my book, my book has three words in it. Carbon capital cloud. Carbon is energy transition decarbonization. Capital is money and talent and cloud is digital. And, mm-hmm. and what are those, how do those three forces come together and how do we, how do we need to be thinking about our environment, our world uh, in, in energy uh, with these three, these, the big C's, you know, like carbon capital and cloud. That's, that's, that's the whole idea behind the book was to get exactly this, this question. Huh. It, it, it definitely. And then it comes back. There's so many factors that people don't understand. And then on the flip side is you're going out. There was Russia. Like most people in America, I didn't even realize how much the U.S. used to import gas from Russia. It was 7% in the market space, 700,000 barrels a day or 695,000 barrels a day. Yep. And it's like, so even though when they were doing all the sanctions to them, we're still sending them to massive checks every day for all the gas we're importing because you couldn't yep. shut down the economy. Yep. It's what you're saying, Jeffy. It's like you've gone down this route whereby it's bad for the environment, but you still need the product. And then where are you going to get the product from? And it's a bit like Venezuela is now coming out. It's, you know, knocking on the door. Time to drop the sanctions. We're ready yeah. to go, guys. Yeah. You know, yeah. man, we're ready to go. It's like these places, they're able to pick up the slack out there in terms of the industry. And people need to realize that without the product, what are you going to do? Switch the lights off, you know? That doesn't, and that won't work either. Like we, we really underplay or underestimate precisely how dependent global economy is on fossil fuel industry for virtually everything. There's no, I mean, there's not a tractor on earth yet at, 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 at any scale that will plow fields to grow food. Mm-hmm. So Elon Musk put a tweet out many months ago, but he said, look, you, you can't not have fossil fuels. Otherwise you don't eat. Like make a, you can't, you, you gotta be, you gotta be completely rational here. And uh, so that's where, you know, we've kind of lost the plot a little bit and I'm, I'm not sure how this plays out, but I, I can, I'm pretty confident to say families, guidance counselors, high school teachers, sports figures, uh, celebrities. I don't hear any voices of influence over young people today who are saying to those young people, Hey, you might want to work in the energy industry. Uh, I'm not here. Nope. I, where's the advocacy? So we should not be surprised at all that they, you know, young people become TikTok entrepreneurs. Yeah. That's where the money is. That's where the money is as well. So, <laughs> exactly. You know, apart from my TikTok, I don't make any money out of it. But uh, uh, yeah, well, you've got your viewership. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so, we'll, so we'll just go through the, the parts of the book. So let yeah. so the, you talk about this first section, digital framework. So yes. explain a bit more to viewers how a digital framework works. Well, the digital framework came about uh, through a couple of observations. One was I was watching a lot of energy concerns pretending to be digital or being digital tourists. And uh, so they weren't really looking at um, the, how digital could support them in a much more systemic way. And so that was the, the, the reason or the rationale for the framework was to try and give people a simple, easy to apply, draw it on a napkin uh, way to frame the role of digital in their enterprise. The framework has three layers, like a three-layer cake. And I always start with the bottom layer because it's uh, the top layer is the most important layer, but you got you, I leave that to the end because it's like the frosting on the cake, you know. First thing is, what's the foundation? Well, the foundation layer is foundations like 
uh, enterprise, classic enterprise systems, cybersecurity protections, uh, platforms, networks, the, basically the plumbing that you have to have to run your, 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 uh, uh, your, your digital world. Part of that plumbing is blockchain technology, actually, because we, we, we have to uh, find whole new ways to trust the world, and we are not going to have the people to run around to assure trust. And the traditional way of doing trust, inspections, audits, human oversight, are fallible. We found that with Dieselgate, and uh, they're costly, and we won't have the people. So blockchain is how we create trust over a whole lot of our future infrastructure, and and um, and then part of the top of that is cloud computing because without cloud you can't do uh, very much of anything anymore uh, for reasons I'll get into in a second. But cloud is how you, uh, the the world now accommodates the, the the this rapid growth of digital innovation. So the first thing you do is put your foundation in place. If you don't have the foundation, you can't you can't even play. Now that's um, necessary, but not sufficient. The middle layer of the cake is what I call the uh, your digital um, signature ways of doing business, and there are four things in this. Number one is data. Data is the lifeblood of digital, and uh, we see this now with the digital companies. Without, you know, they're masters at monetizing data and storing it and capturing it and doing things with it. So oil and gas companies, traditionally, we don't view data as an asset. We view it as an expense. And if it's an expense, you minimize it. You, you keep your costs down. You don't invest in expenses. You invest to get rid of expense. So data is kind of, uh, we, we think about data weirdly in oil and gas, and the world has moved. It's moved to a new place. So that first, first challenge, how do you think differently about data? Second is how do you generate that data? Internet of things. Uh, third is how do you handle, interpret, and make sense of all this data? That's the world of artificial intelligence and machine learning. That's how you take all of this huge pile of data and make sense of it. And then the fourth thing is how do you put the data to work? And that's robotics and autonomy. And uh, the, in the framework, the, the, those are the four things at the very center, the center of this cake, this three-layer three layer cake. Every, every business unit, every team, every company has and can create its own signature way of doing working uh, of work by combining and recombining data, Internet of Things, machine tools, and robots. Tesla's cars, great illustration of this. Those cars have supercomputers on board, lots of sensors generating lots of data. The supercomputer, supercomputers then interpret all that data, machine learning and AI, and then they give the car automated driving capability. Now, it's not perfect, but the direction of travel is really clear. Now, if you can do that for a car, well, you could do that for a frack spread. You could do it for a drill rig. You could do it for a pump or a compressor or all kinds of things in oil and gas. And so that, that's that digital heartbeat that we need in the center of our framework. And then if you do, you can buy those two layers of this framework and you can do those two layers, but you can't be digital unless we rethink the people component of digital. As it turns out, um, you know, kids, well, kids, you and I, right? We both do TikTok and YouTube videos. Digital is very easy to do, but unless you think differently, um, you don't really succeed as uh, to the same degree as you, as you could. And so the top of the layers is what I call digital capability. And that includes uh, things like agile methods and iterative uh, development tools and user experience and gamification and all these techniques we use to get people to work with digital uh, more uh, gracefully and easily. I mean, there's no training for Uber. 
you just get the app and you use it. How, oil and gas, we don't think like that. We, we, we plan for apprenticeships the last months. Whereas, whereas in the digital world, no, 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 apprenticeship, using these tools is much faster. And then the very, very top is people and change management because the, the, the real big gap here is going to be in people and skills in oil and gas to, to work with and deal with digital. So that's why I call this a digital framework. Three layers, a people layer, a digital um, uh, signature way of doing work, of digital heartbeat, digital central layer, and then digital foundations. And you need those three layers to work if you want to be digital, truly digital enterprise. And then how you apply that to different parts of oil and gas is the creative part. That's where you need strategy and other thinking to, to really apply the framework. So, so in your book as well, you speak about digital oil and gas. You spoke about it there. But yep. what point is this at transformation into the industry? Uh, so I, I'm at mixed views here. Prior to the pandemic, I would have said that it was uh, very, 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 very early stages, if at all. Um, and not, not literally not detectable. And uh, then the pandemic hit and <laughs> the industry, like everywhere, right? We were forced into social distancing and you had to do things all remotely. And uh, the energy industry at that point discovered it had invested in quite by, ac quite by accident, but it was there, all of the capabilities to do things like work from home and uh, manage assets remotely, et cetera. And, uh, and it moved very, very quickly to put these things into force. I tell a story on my one of my keynote addresses, a big oil company in, in uh, Calgary um, in 2016 uh, uh, confronted a massive forest fire in Fort Mac. It was, it was, it was headed to the town. It was going to burn the town to the ground. And, the, and they managed to put the fire out. Uh, but the oil company said, OK, we need to move our control room out of Fort Mac down to Calgary where it's safe. And this project dragged on for four years dealing with all the issues and the objections and the challenges and all the problems it would cause and the inconvenience and where are we going to get talent and blah, 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 blah. Then the pandemic hit and they moved that control room in two weeks. What that taught us was that a lot of these objections are just bullshit. People should just get over it and move on. Number one. Number two, we can move fast when we need to. We can move fast. And uh, the industry discovered third is that all kinds of latent digital capabilities out there, cameras everywhere, uh, machine tools to do uh, monitoring of equipment, uh, all that sort of stuff meant that uh, a, uh, our industry could uh, embrace change and, 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 and react and adapt very quickly. So we've gone from pre-pandemic to undetectable to post-pandemic where we're at now, where I don't know of a single large oil company that has not established either a digital team or a digital enablement team. It's, it's everyone is working on it now. And the, and the challenge is that the results are uneven and it's too slow. And that's why I wrote the second book together was, okay, so how do we accelerate this? Because it's, it's, it's right where we need to be um, in terms of, you know, energy transition and, and, and the like. Yeah. And then, and then the other thing we spoke about is like the changes in business models. So yes, so how does the business models change for oil companies going into this new energy age? Well, the, the change is, um, is can be fairly dramatic uh, and, and very, very significant uh, as an example because of um, these digital tools, cloud computing, blockchain, for instance. We are now able to take what a piece of equipment that formally, formally you'd have to purchase if you're an oil company, 
uh, you now can rent and consume just cycles of use rather than having to own the asset. This is a big deal when capital markets are not giving you capital to spend on your equipment. If you no longer have to buy it, but you can rent it, uh, and then once you're done renting it, turn it back to the, uh, to the, to the, to the owner in a, a lease model, it transforms the economics of this industry quite a bit. That's huge. Uh, second is as you get more and more autonomy, like more and more of our tools and equipment being uh, it, um, uh, operated or managed by robots or more robotically, we can pull people out of the business model. That's also huge for a business that's highly tied to availability of people in, in a world where people don't want to work in this industry. So those are two, just two examples. But I, uh, my book has nine examples of, of uh, different business models cropping up. Uh, a big one is currency rate based. If you look around the world, um, uh, countries like China and Russia are trying very hard to wean themselves off of the U.S. monetary system because uh, the U.S. banking system, once you put a sanction on, you know, the insurance industry, you can't get money to finance your operations. So how do you how do you get around that? Cryptocurrency. Find some other way to have, create an exchange of value for your assets uh, that uh, that allows you to not have to deal with the U.S. banking system. We there, this is all going on, and we're not talking about you know Joe entrepreneur in in, in um, you know Austin, Texas, trying to sort this out. We're talking national governments are trying to figure this out. This is so there's a lot of energy going into this, and that's going to change fundamentally how we think about energy purchase and sale down the, down the track. When you know some country will say to you, "Happy to do an oil deal with you, but I want to be settled. I want to be settled in this cryptocurrency." And that's a big change. Because it, it sideswipes the entire banking system. So that's just a third example. But th you know, again, lots and lots of examples of these happening. Yeah, no, no, I understand with the, the oil coin concept. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, with Dan Eisner, who came up with that concept and developed that in terms of settling. You know, it, essentially it was a stable coin backed against oil price to do that. To, but yeah. it was amazing the differences. And that was floated around 2016. So yes, now you're, yeah. you're, you're talking about, it's not like a new idea for people to no, realize that no, six years. No. And then, no. as you say, I think people don't understand sanctions properly, but, you know, the U.S. can easily put sanctions on countries because if you're using the U.S. dollars, your main reserve currency, which most countries most in the world countries do, do yep. and they say, well, you're not allowed to operate with Russia. Otherwise, you know, we'll put, turn off the U.S. <laughs> turn off your bank accounts. <laughs> <laughs> they make it very, very difficult to operate with these people. Precisely. Suddenly it's, it becomes difficult. And then, you know, and they want to get paid in the ruble. So they help the ruble stay strong where other currencies went down. Yeah. I know um, if it's people speaking about the, the digital yen as well, that's coming in from China, that's for CBDCs. You know, everyone's in America and Canada are worried about central bank digital currencies in Europe. You know, how are yeah. they going to be the control? But, you know, I was reading an article last, well, a couple of weeks ago that, you know, China's already done 23 million in their CBDC already. So their CBDC is not some white paper. It's actually operational. And and with, I think it's 128 countries now across the world, the number one trading partner is China. Yep. So a lot of the people think that it could yep. be uh, the digital yen by 2040. It'll suddenly be the number one currency in the world. And it'll be this transition where we're going into these types of currencies and they're saying, well, you know, we want everything settled in the digital yen rather than the U.S. dollar now. 
Yeah. But then I had Emmanuel Daniel last week saying, well, a lot of the Chinese contractors who operate out with China, they don't even want to get paid in the yen. They want to get paid in the US dollars. So it's the whole thing's so complex that it's just people need to realize that. But yeah. as you say, the, the financial markets are changing anyway. They so, are. We, yeah, we, so we can't, you can't ignore that. And, uh, you know, if China does come out with a digital, um, I'm not sure I'd say I'd call it digital yen. I think that's the, the Japanese yen. The no, there was the UAE yen. It's not yen. Oh, yuan. The yuan. Yuan, yeah, digital yeah, yuan. Okay. Oh, there you go. There's just the Scottish, the Scottish twist on things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I used to so live that's in Hong the one, That's the one that's, and they're ahead of everyone else. They're they're five years ahead of everyone else. In yeah, terms exactly. Of yeah. So and, in China's case, of course, they can they can go to the state banks, of which there are lots, and say, "Thou shalt use this currency from now on." And like, the banks are like, "Okay, well, now." So that's how they roll this out. These the technologies can roll out in their economy, uh, and they can establish figure figure it out. How do you, how you know how do you how do you uh, settle? How do you transact? How do you deal with wallets? How do you deal with fraud? All that sort of stuff. They'll figure all that out in the domestic economy. And uh, I feel like there's another example of a business model. Our business model for money, currency, and settlement uh, more broadly um, is behind the curve. And yeah. we, we we need to we need to be mindful of that model. If it comes into oil and gas, we have a completely new way of thinking about oil and gas settlement. But far again, far bigger than than oil and gas. Yeah, and then you know, obviously, I've studied the petro in terms of Venezuela developing yeah. the petro dollar. But you yep. know, the concept behind it is good. But they were using it to get on sanctions rather than using it for this technology to settle. But if you yes. think of uh, this ability to settle in a currency that's avoiding you know banking fees and international transaction fees you know i think it was like 200 billion dollars a year and this is going back 2016 yes. in terms of what that's what people lose they don't realize that it's a huge amount of money just in transaction fees oh it's, it's enormous yeah. yeah 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 visa and mastercard are two of the most profitable country companies on on in north america and uh yeah, you know, I, I, I sell books. I, so I, I have to pay fees to those guys. And, you know, I don't see a lot of value for the fees that I'm paying, considering 3% of every transaction just disappears off to Visa and MasterCard. And they've got 80, 90% margins or whatever their numbers are. Like it's very ridiculous mm -hmm. businesses, not nearly enough competition in that part of our financial uh, industry. Fortunately, that's changing very ra uh, rapidly. Uh, so we, we might see our, our way out of it. But yeah, mm -hmm. the business models, key part of the book is discussion of the business model issues. Okay. So, and then as we're coming up to closer to the end of the podcast here, we'll, we'll talk about blockchain for energy as well. So yeah. obviously we both know about blockchain for energy, the, the team working out of um, Houston, Rebecca yes. is the CEO, but yes. just give your insight to blockchain for energy, mm -hmm. what they're doing and why is it what they're doing is pivotal to the future of oil and gas? Well, the, the, the uh, so first, many big oil companies have concluded uh, that uh, to go it alone on blockchain will give them value, but um, real value release comes when a ecosystem is uh, working to uh, uh, collaborate on blockchain-based business structures for document exchange, smart contract execution and the like. And uh, so the, the power of the consortium uh, structure of blockchain for energy, it, given that no one oil company in the U.S. actually can dictate terms to the total supply chain, 
uh, unlike Walmart, say, Walmart's so big in retail, it can just say to its suppliers, this is how we do business, sign up, or you, you don't get, you don't, you're not in our stores. And most businesses will go, oh, well, I want your 50% of retail, I better be in your store. So, but that doesn't, doesn't work that way on, in oil and gas. Uh, so there, there isn't one big guy or, or company out there that dictates terms. So the consortium gets together to answer that question and create enough critical mass to promote some of these concepts and ideas throughout the industry. So that's its, uh, its key, key uh, value uh, promise. Um, and uh, uh, it, uh, by virtue of, of attracting uh, uh, oil companies and critical suppliers to it, like big EPC firms, it uh, can now uh, generate enough muscle to uh, invest dollars uh, first in a, a, a quasi R&D, but most of it's going into practical use cases, uh, but can, can finance uh, companies to go and explore hardcore use cases where value is released. And that's very hard to do when you're a startup uh, to try and get the industry to change. So by br bringing that concentration of force into the one uh, consortium structure uh, unlocks uh, the opportunity for the industry to really explore these new business models and, and uh, proceed. So I'm a big believer in it. And I've, I've actually described it in the book as one of the handful of examples in the industry where collaboration versus and cooperation yields a greater value than just straight pure competition. And, and this is a good example of it. Yeah, no, no, I agree with that as well. Yeah. So j just going to bring in, just so we're not 100% oil and gas here, uh, <laughs> we're going to speak about the future, but uh, I was looking for an article that might be, get your insight to it, is the future of green hydrogen. So this is actually yeah. an oil price, believe it or not. So anyone out there thinks oil price only focuses on oil, but this article released yesterday is the world is racing to wrap up green hydrogen production. Yep. So, so what's your thoughts of this? Because ultimately, one of the problems I saw with hydrogen before is it's not the creation of hydrogen, it's the transportation of hydrogen. It's like, how do you, that's the good thing about oil and coal is, you know, you can stick it on a, a ship and you can transport it in around the world and people can get it at the other end. Yeah. But use hydrogen you know, how, how's that going to be beneficial and going forward? And do you really think it's going to have a big play in replacing uh, fossil fuels? Yeah, great questions. And uh, the world is, uh, there's a lot of money flowing into hydrogen right now to figure this answers out to these questions. But here's a few things that rattle around for what it's worth. So, so one is <clears throat> hydrogen is a very small molecule, <laughs> two hydrogen atoms. And, um, uh, because they're so small, they can penetrate the walls of metal pipe, make the pipe brittle. So, uh, whereas methane, <clears throat> CH4, uh, bigger molecule, can't penetrate metal. So, mechanically, just to move hydrogen around needs different metal. It's not like you can put hydrogen into your existing gas infrastructure and send it on its way and go, oh, well, we're, we're good. No, it won't work that way. Uh, and I don't know about you, not too many countries, cities are out there tearing up their streets to haul and put in all new pipe for hydrogen. Japan's running a trial now where they're threading a hydrogen pipe through an existing gas pipe for, to, to figure this exact problem out. How do you distribute hydrogen in our infrastructure? So we have this infrastructure problem we haven't sorted out. Second problem is the burner tips. Like, I don't know what your, your gas heater, I don't know if you have a gas heater. I've got a gas hot water heater. I'd have to replace the hot water heater if I want to use hydrogen. 
because the burner chip's not correct. Uh, so, okay, so you're going to go to all these homes and have them haul out their, their uh, burner tips. That's a lot of work. Um, what about the fact that hydrogen's energy density is, is considerably less than that of, of, um, of uh, methane? Because there's two hydrogen atoms, not four. So you got half the den energy density. You have to lower it to a much lower temperature to ship it anywhere. Uh, because it's uh, it's um, uh, to get it into a liquid state, it's got to be minus two hundred and sixty or some 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 low, ridiculously low number. That means all new cryogenic ships have to be developed and put into service. Now you have to stand up a shipbuilding industry to move hydrogen around. Okay, so can't tear up the pipes, can't haul out the burner tips. Got to build uh, all this new infrastructure. Hydrogen so has some promise, but it what, it's going to be in very very specific applications. For example, here's a great one. Imagine you operate a fleet of buses in a big city. And so every day they, they drive around the city and then they return to base. You could conceivably convert your buses to hydrogen because you could generate uh, green hydrogen, say, from renewable energy at your bus um, uh, repair depot or fueling station. And then as your buses come in during the day, you refuel them with hydrogen and send them on their way. Economically, you could see how that could work. Little little microcosm closed loop could, could work really well. But to think that hydrogen is going to be in your car or my car, it's, it's, it's a, we're a long ways from that. Battery technology is probably really good at the micro level for personal transportation. Hydrogen may be at the ship level where you're, you're moving a vessel around the, or applying the oceans. So we're, we're gonna, it, 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 there's definitely a place for hydrogen uh, green hydrogen has some real advantages. It, you can make it anywhere where you've got renewable energy, which is just about everywhere. And uh, it, it has some great localized uh, consumption value drivers. But uh, th to think that we're going to rip out all of our you know, current energy infrastructure for hydrogen, a bit fanciful yet. I, I just don't see it. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that as well, Jeffrey. It's, I remember Budweiser came out and they said they were going to transport all the beer around the Midwest with their hydrogen trucks back in 2018. And it was like a million dollars yep. a truck and they were going to have 20, uh, 20 was it 20 trucks? Yeah. So yep. they're going to invest that. But then they realized there's nowhere else to, to top up their trucks with hydrogen. Because <laughs> uh, gonna... the station's got them, you know. Yeah, so no one, yeah. The, replace the gas stations with doing hydrogen and it just becomes as you're saying it it sounds okay in a microcosm doing that but as you start to try and extrapolate that out it becomes nearly impossible yeah you know? i think the return to base model is the a very good immediate application you could get to especially if your capital assets turn over quite a bit buses might be an example or delivery trucks something like that but mm -hmm. if your capital doesn't turn over much which municipality do you know is prepared to take its, I don't know, half a billion dollar bus fleet and throw it in the garbage and or retrofit it all for, for hydrogen? Um, like Amazon won't be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even even San Francisco, I would wonder. No, I don't see it. Yeah. Not 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 in the short term. So we got we got we got a long ways to go yet before hydrogen becomes a heavy duty player in this. And uh, but that's I'm not discounting it at all. It has some very attractive uh, benefits, uh, but we're going to just to be very selective about where we where we deploy it. Really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's been great. So yeah. so just to, the, to bring the show to an end here, I'm just going to put up your website there just now. I'll bring Thank back you. in the the uh, the book here. It is. 
Carbon Capital in the Cloud. Uh, you can get it on jeffycap.com. <laughs> There's the book itself. Yep. There as lots well. of lots of stickies because I'm constantly referring to different passages and content. People who, who get the book tell me they, they mark it all up because it's just chock full of useful stuff. Mm -hmm. so yeah. Perfect. And, and anything else you'd like to finish with then, Jeffrey? Uh, so my latest project is, uh, um, I, I, during the pandemic, I, um, uh, worked with uh, an, an outfit called heroic public speaking out of New Jersey to, uh, create much more of an impactful on stage presentation of my work. Um, prior to that, I was, you know, Deloitte classic boardroom kind of presentation, but I've moved along to where I'm now at a much, much different level. And, uh, uh, so as a professional speaker now, uh, my my real ambition is to take these these works and put them in front of large audiences in ways that inspire and entertain and and motivate them to change. Um, my next um, later on next week, I'm going to be putting my uh, presentation publicly um, through uh, an association I have with uh, Finboot, a blockchain company out of Europe. Uh, if people want to um, uh, take it all in, it's 30 minutes, but you can see uh, what would normally you'd have to pay $1,000 to go to a conference to catch it. Uh, I'm going to be producing it live um, uh, for people to watch uh, online. So mm -hmm. I would encourage people to check that out and uh, sign up for it. Uh, there's a link okay. on my uh, on my website for it. And we'll put it all in the show notes as well. Get Perfect. People yeah, can do that that'd well. be great. Yeah. So that's great. So, well, thanks very much then, Jeffrey. Appreciate a busy guy. It's uh, good to get you on Thanksgiving. So <laughs> everyone else in America is off apart from me. So I, I'm off to eat some turkey in a little bit as well. So thanks Enjoy. very much for your time today, Jeffrey. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for your interest in my work. Okay. Thanks very much. Thanks to everyone at home. You've been watching Boom, It's on the Blockchain. My name is Alistair Caithness. Have a nice day.